0: Justin Pish, welcome back to the What is Money Show for session two of the Pish series. Let's do it. So, we're talking about The Brain by David Eagleman, which is an excellent book you recommended, and a book that just makes you think differently about thinking, <laughs> I guess you could say. And uh, I think we left off, we we're talking about the that reality actually as we perceive it is really just a biological interface and we touched a little bit on that other book uh, the case against reality which you said you read and kind of just thought was intuitive so i think it's your background on reading about the brain is probably books like this you already really understood or you considered reality a biological interface but for someone like me I started out with in astrophysics and whatnot. I've always kind of thought we perceived objective reality as it is. So that was a real flip in my mind. And I think in a lot of people's minds would just see the world in a different way. And so the way Eagleman puts this is he says, your interpretation of physical objects has everything to do with the historical trajectory of your brain and little to do with the objects themselves hmm Which yeah. to me is just mind blowing. So it's like, so we don't even see what's real. We see what our brain is designed to see.
1: Yeah. And it has, it goes to, we talked about this a little bit in the first part uh, with the labeling piece of like how your brain labels things and how it uses uh, biological value um, through either fear or happiness or whatever to label things. And we, you know, We talked about the example of the uh, child looking at the snake. Mm. And so when you think about this, this statement by Eagleman, your interpretation of physical objects has everything to do with your history and your trajectory and the cognitive conditioning of what you've experienced. And then the biological value that's being assigned to that history and those events as you experience them and the participants and other people that are with you. Through those experience, because mm-hmm. they have an, a, a way to, especially early on, have an, a way, and even when you're older, um, think about here's a here's a great Bitcoin example. We just experienced this big, giant, massive sell-off. If you're surrounded with a bunch of really knowledgeable friends that understand the fundamentals of what's going on, um, your ability to manage your emotions through that. A, a, situation. Heck, you might you might not even have a real deep understanding, but if you have trust and you uh, you value the other people you're around and their knowledge and they're there buying, what are you going to do? You're going to be buying with them. Mm-hmm. But if you've surrounded yourself with friends that are just total morons and have no idea what in the world they even own, and they're all like, dude, it's going to die. Sell it all right now. You're going to sell it all. And then, you know, my my opinion is the price is going to drastically recover. And um, if that would play out, the the people who sold at the bottom after that big emotional experience, then the price goes up and then they're, the labeling and the history that they're experiencing, that trajectory and that cognitive conditioning is that thing over there is poisonous. I'm never touching it again. And all the right. other people that made money off of my back are evil people, right? Versus the other person who was who was with knowledgeable participants. My opinion on how this is going to play out, but um, they're going to view it completely differently. Mm. And so it, I mean, it's it's kind of crazy that the same exact event can get c- cognitively conditioned into a person's brain completely differently. Um, and it was the exact same situation, just the participants and how they were viewing it optically was different based on their knowledge of what they know and what they don't know, which is another thing that was that was preceded in how they arrived at that moment in time.
0: Yeah, it's a great point. And just for the audience, we're recording right now on May 20th, 2021. So Bitcoin just had, sounds like a 50% drawdown from its yeah. um, local maximum Massive. here. Yeah. Massive. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's this, Jordan Peterson makes a point that we actually outsource our sanity to those around us. So this is kind of like economic specialization as we can't be experts in every domain, right? We can't be our own barber and our own dentist and our own computer engineer. Like we need to specialize in trade and that's yeah. how we become more than the sum of our parts. But we also do that at a neurological level sounds right with like the people around us that maybe they have an ability to see what we can't see or, or help us overcome our blind spots. Um, but that to me, that's dangerous too. Cause that has a dark side because that can become groupthink, right. Where everyone's just sort of following a herd mentality.
1: So these are shortcuts that serve the person well in almost all instances of their life. Um there's a if you want to read a book that's just incredible. Um it's called Influence by Robert Cialdini. Mm, okay. Um and uh boy, you want to talk about when you finish this book, you you will walk around and you will you will view the world through a different lens than you did before reading that book. And um in fact, uh You know, one of the main reasons I found it was Charlie Munger is on the record for saying this is one of his favorite books of all time, and he's you know a maniac when it comes to reading books. Um, but in that book, uh, the thing that Robert Cialdini, um, he he opens it up. I don't know if it's in the first chapter, but it's early on in the book. He talks about this lady who is. in the business of selling like blue topaz jewelry. You you see this a lot in Arizona and kind of in that part of the country. And uh, the woman was trying to get rid of it because she had too much inventory or something like that, if I'm remembering the story correctly. And so, but she was going on vacation. And so she left her employee a note that said, hey, we need to get rid of the inventory. Uh, Mark it down uh, half was basically how she wrote it. So somehow the, the note was misinterpreted, or the, the handoff to the employee was was misinterpreted. And the employee marked the jewelry up double. Okay. Hmm. So it was the exact opposite of what she had asked for to happen. And, and the way that this got written into the book is the person who who uh, this happened to, they, they wrote a note and they sent it to Robert Cialdini after it happened saying. I can't understand what happened here help me understand this right so long story short uh the person comes back um from their vacation to find that all the jewelry was sold like they had sold you know faster than they've ever sold it before yeah. and um she was like and then she's looking at the receipts and she's she's you know made twice as much as she's normally made on the on the inventory. She's like, what in the world is going on? And um, so lo and behold, uh, so she sent this off to Robert and Robert did his analysis. Well, she, she was selling the jewelry in a location where there's a lot of tourists and vacationers. And there's a psychological or a cognitive bias that people have that if something's expensive
0: mm.
1: relative to another thing, there's an automatic bias that it's higher quality. And in this situation, there's other jewelry stores with blue topaz in it and same size and same make or whatever. And they go to this one and it's twice the price. And the vacationers were looking at that and saying, well, this one must be super high quality and therefore I'm going to buy that over the one that's half as much. And you see this in marketing too. I mean, uh, you know, some of these purses that people sell for uh, $5,000 a purse or whatever for Louis Vuitton or you name it, people are looking at that and, and it has scarcity into it and all these other properties that you know, we talk about when we're talking about money. But I think the, the important point that we're getting at with this is just your, your brain cannot be an expert on blue topaz you know as a person like you just have the the capacity of all the things that you have to be an expert on exceeds your capacity of, of ex of past experiences to know certain things and so people will default and so the whole book is about what are what are these things that we do in our life that are shortcuts that we rely on heavily that um you know, influence us in certain ways that we don't necessarily know. Um, if this is interesting, I can give you one more story, which I find yeah, absolutely, absolutely fascinating. So this one here, and this is all about commitments. People have a cognitive bias to seem consistent. They want to. They want to seem consistent. So let me tell you the story. So they did this study where they wanted to see how much a person could uphold this cognitive bias of commitment bias. So they asked the person to they they went door to door and they asked them to uh, support a political candidate for like a local political race. They started off and they went to I don't you know this, let's say they went to 20 houses or whatever and they gave a person a really really small like little bumper sticker or something that a person could just stick in the window of their car. Very tiny. And um the The people that said yes, you know they kept track of like how many houses said yes. Let's just for example, say that fifty percent of the houses said yes, that they would put that in there or they would accept it and take it and put it up there. So then they they went back to those same houses and they asked them to put a sign in the yard and of the houses that took the sticker versus the ones that that um you know versus houses that they never went to. Okay. Because there's obviously the political party, like one side or the other, they went to a whole new set of houses that they've never gone to. And then they, they saw how many people accepted the sign. And now let's go back to the houses that accepted the sticker and see how many of them accept the sign. Then they went back and they ran a whole nother third sample and they like made a sign so big that it was like the size of the house that they were trying to get the person, the stick in the front yard. And as they went to the third set of people that are seeing this massive sign for the first time, everybody said, no, I'm not putting that thing in my yard. But the people who had accepted and stepped, progressively stepped up,
0: mm. accepted
1: this crazy giant sign to stick in their yard. And what they you know concluded with this study is that people do not want to look inconsistent You see this Mm. on Twitter, you see this in the office, you see this like, uh, you know, if you're sitting in a boardroom and a person had previously said that, I think we should do X, Y, and Z, they don't want to look like they changed their mind because they don't want to look like they have a cognitive inconsistency of saying one thing and then then doing the other. Mm. And so this drives cognitive behavior. And so we have all these shortcuts. And so people- are like that because they don't want to be judged as this flip-floppy kind of person that can't manage and live their life in a consistent kind of way. And so when we see that, we typically will say, that person's inconsistent, so I don't want to associate with them. And so the reaction is that people have this consistency bite. And so you have all these little things that are happening um, in the brain and these shortcuts that are taking place that serve us very well, really well, Mm -hmm. most of the time. But there's these instances where it will absolutely fail you um, if you don't, you know, ask why five times and, and use critical thinking. You know, when I look at a guy like uh, Stan Drunkenmiller, um he is so adamant. Anytime he does an interview, he's like, "Well, that's the way I see it today, but you know, tomorrow I might, I might have the exact opposite in pay, opinion. In fact, I might even take the exact opposite position in my portfolio mm-hmm. tomorrow." Right. Yeah. He yeah. he takes pride in not having a consistency bias because look at his profession. His profession requires it. Yeah. And so, um, you know, just some some interesting things to think about and, and how the brain does get wired and how we rely on these shortcuts and biases and
0: and uh yeah. Yeah, and they're very hardwired into us and very dangerous in investing, right? Because yes. you, you can just get yes. Unconsciously making decisions that can get you into a lot of trouble. Um, that book by Childani is called Influence. Is that right?
1: Yeah, he has he has two. One is called Influence. The other one is
0: called Persuasion. I think. think. Pre-presuasion is that's the, other the one, one I read. I didn't read okay. Influence. Yeah.
1: So I think Persuasion is uh it's a very good book. I think influence is way better. Um, but persuasion gets into, as you as you know, a little bit more of uh, the cognitive precursors that influence people yes. in ways that they would probably not believe were true. So, for example, um, if you go into a wine store and you hear German music playing in the background, you're chances of buying a German wine is way higher, like statistically provably higher. But if you yeah. ask the person as they came out of the store, whether they were influenced by the music, they would laugh at you.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's so interesting. So there, I remember in persuasion, he talked about, I think it was an insurance salesman that had, he was just like, was an order of magnitude better salesman than everyone else in the country. Yeah. So yeah. someone uh, had monitored his performance to see what he was doing different. And to your point about building towards yes, like, um, people not wanting to seem inconsistent, this salesman had a technique where he would go into their home, start to present to them. And then he would say, Oh, you know, I left my keys or presentation materials in the car. Do you mind if I let myself back in the front door and that like getting people to say yes to that, everyone's going to say yes Yes. to that. Right. That was not only was he getting a Yes. But he's also building rapport with them that you're just yeah. letting someone voluntarily come in your front door. So he just through that little technique apparently translated into just a lot more uh deals closed, which yep. I thought was really interesting. And then you know, you were talking about the topaz. Um, I think they call in economics they call that a Veblen good, right? Yeah. When, when something has a higher price, demand actually goes up, which is contrary mm-hmm. to you know econ 101. And so is Do you think money in that context is kind of like the ultimate Veblen good in a way? Like everyone always prefers the money with the most network, most liquidity, most purchasing power to all others.
1: Yes, for sure. Especially as you're looking at a a ticker that is happening 24 hours a day, seven days (laughs) a week, right? And the value keeps going up relative to what they're used to
0: measuring everything in. And that's... Number go up in a nutshell, right? (laughs) Number go up technology. Um, yeah, it's really interesting that, um, we're building this reality, but there's just so much inertia built into us genetically. Like we just have these, you know, inherent tendencies, I guess. And, um, It's all, it's borderline manipulative. You know, it's like, where do you draw the line between influence and manipulation? Because if you know, if you're aware of these biases, not only are you resistant, somewhat more resistant to them, still not perfectly, but you can also exploit them in others.
1: Well, and so what does that come to? It comes to what we briefly mentioned on the last discussion, which is intentions.
0: Mm, If you
1: know these things, if you know all how these things work and you're using them in a manner that, is an intention that is self-serving solely mm-hmm. at the cost of somebody else, I would tell you you're creating pain for yourself in your future. Yes. Um, If you're a person who is leveraging, and you know this. I mean, it's like, it's like knowing how to use the force in Star yeah, Wars, yeah, right? Yeah. Like if you know how to use the force, you can use it for the good or you can use it for the bad. Um, what are your intentions?
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. That that even I mean, that's kind of a definition of evil in a way, right? When you're yeah, knowingly maliciously harming someone to benefit yourself.
1: I I I hesitate to use the word evil. I would I would probably use it more as parasitic. Mm. You're you're a parasitic being, meaning you feed on the the environment around you. You devour it, you consume Mm. it at the expense of somebody else.
0: Right. Instead of creating value, you're siphoning value. Yeah, yeah. So this just has me thinking. When you brought up the term "parasitic," um, I've I've referred to the central bank many times as an economic parasite. Yeah. Do you? Th- I'll just say I'm convinced that the founders of the Federal Reserve knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly what the institution was designed to do. Do you think the Jerome Powell And other governors of the modern age, do you think they know what they're doing, or they literally have they just drank the Keynesian Kool Aid and they're just along for the ride? I
1: I like to think that from their vantage point, um, they are trying their best to keep order, right? Mm. And when you look at well, what's the opposite of order? Order. The opposite of order is chaos. Um. When you uh, when you when you look at how they're trying to manage it, they're pulling the levers to extend order as long as possible. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, is there, a, is there another solution that they could implement? Um, yes, there is, and this solution is is effectively uh, you know stop manipulating the money. Now, if they do that they're going to create chaos like almost immediately. All right. Right. And so I think they're they're in a catch 22 situation. It's the ultimate yeah. catch 22. Yeah. Because if they do that, there's going to a most of your market participants, a majority of your market participants are not going to understand the why. They're not going to agree with the decision. They're going to have social unrest. And um, you know what would that spiral into? So it's almost like a known chaos mm-hmm. that they would implement with the hope of of order restoring itself in some kind of peaceful way. Whereas if they continue to do what they're doing, which is QE, which is free money for people that have assets or f- the free bidding of the uh, valuation of assets because they're just you know stepping into the market and manipulating the bond market. UBI, they're doing that, which is instead of giving it to the rich people, which is pretty much what QE does, mm-hmm. um, they're now giving it to everybody else. But now they're creating a, a nasty incentive structure where people don't want to work yeah, and not be productive members of society. And so uh, either, either choice to add more money into the system so that there is just some type of liquidity in the system to be used because it's all... Nesting itself and pulling itself into the valuation of of assets, asset values. Um, They're in this really odd situation that neither one of those things really solves the problem. Now, what's really interesting about Bitcoin is it supplies a solution to what we're describing. Central bankers don't necessarily have to say they like it, but at the same time, might see it as, as a solution. And if they would, okay, if they would see it as a solution, let's say I'm Jerome Powell, and I understand how Bitcoin works, but I also understand how more and more liquidity needs to be provided into the system so chaos doesn't ensue, like a bridging event mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where the money flows into this new thing, and and maybe there's this chance. So like that that could absolutely be the case. Because his actions would not be any different than what they are right now and what right. they will likely be in the future. So, I, I guess for me, I'm a little hesitant, and maybe my Twitter is is different than what I'm saying right now. But deep down inside, I think that, um, I I think that even if they were they understood all of this, I don't think it would necessarily. Uh, require them to change what they're doing. I think, in fact, they would actually have to continue to do what they're doing to probably supply the most orderly um, redistribution of wealth the world has ever seen.
0: And that so continue on the current path, but they would add Bitcoin advocation, just saying-
1: no, I th- think that, uh, I don't think they have to do that. I think as long as they're kind of mute on the issue, it's it's going to, it's probably, because think about it, if they start coming out and saying, hey, you should probably be buying Bitcoin with all this money we're printing and stuffing oh into gosh. your hands, it'd be a free for all. <laughs> yeah. It'd be a free for all. So, so maybe you could make the moral argument that what they're doing is probably best for an orderly changeover. I don't know.
0: Yeah. He- but i don't he, see
1: them as bad people i don't see it, them as bad people i see it, them as as maybe uh lacking all the facts
0: <laughs> yeah are they silent on the issue though i think he's i'm not sure if he's i think he's just given the general response like it's a speculative non currency yeah too volatile yeah 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 it's interesting because I, I
1: i'd be a little know. surprised if some of them didn't understand it to be honest with you robert i think they do understand it
0: you know, one lie does come to mind is when he's saying that monetary policy and wealth inequality are unrelated. I remember him saying that not too many months ago. And that's... Think, was- think, about, think about what would happen. This
1: is how I like to uncover, for me, what I believe to be the truth, right? As I always just take the 180 of whatever it is. So like mm-hmm. that, where you were going with that question, let's take the 180 of it. Let's say that he goes out and he... He doesn't say that. He says it is causing major social unrest. All this money we printed for the last 10 years went straight into the wealthy. We have all the charts right here. Proves proves it, right? Like people would, I mean, it would be disaster. It'd be chaos. Yeah. It'd be chaos. So they can't say that, right? So let's look at their intentions. Are their intentions to create chaos or are there intentions to create calm and a semblance of order?
0: Man, this is so sticky and ambiguous to me. Yeah. And I don't want to
1: sound like I'm sticking up for them. Trust me. I'm not. Because when I look at the damage that was done, like this situation that we're in and how we got here, in my very humble opinion, was the result of decisions that happened from like the 1940s up until like the 1980s. Like those, those decisions were made in that space in that time were the input, almost like you were pushing a swing, right? That was the input that has delivered this situation that we're actually experiencing now in 2020. Mm -hmm. It's just taken a really long time to play out.
0: Yeah. I agree with you. Man, it is an impossible job because now it's like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. They've
1: got an impossible job right now
0: can't tell the absolute truth or you just throw things into pure chaos. So then you're forced to like, I mean, maybe not be deceptive, maybe just not conceal, maybe just conceal part of the truth to try and maintain this veneer of order as long as possible. It's just, it's a very ugly catch 22. Um, Chaos
1: is going to happen. Well, I don't want to say chaos, but disruption is going to happen. Yeah. That, that is Because the input for the disruption was already supplied. You can't take it back. You can't get in a time machine and take it back. So if that's true, and please, I'm using the word if, in my opinion, it's true, um, the disruption is going to happen one way or another. It's just how it happens and what Mm -hmm. supplies it. And so you know, I think you you had your discussions with Jeff. He does such an eloquent job talking about how this inflationary monetary policy, especially when it's applied for 80 years, has this massive, massive technological incentive structure to create this deflationary force that becomes so large. It's like trying. It's like if you went to you know the beach and there's a tidal wave coming. You know the biggest tidal wave you can imagine like looking at other people on the beach and saying, yeah, we can stop that.
0: Yeah. Like it's crazy it's yeah. crazy
1: talk. It's it's yeah. going to hit. It's just a matter of how it hits and and where you're at when it hits. It's just yeah.
0: And this is I mean this gets to the core lesson we need to learn as a species, which I guess Bitcoin is really just going to be the answer once and for all is that manipulation of the money always ends in disaster. You either have deflationary shock back to reality or you have inflationary crack up boom, which is hyperinflation. Um, it's never worked out any other way. It's not like we've well, ever. It's a,
1: it's a force of manipulation that's yes. supplied into the environment. And when that happens, the environment will react. If I went and I pour toxic waste into a pond, mm-hmm. the pond's going to naturally try to figure out a way to decompose that. Mm-hmm now it might result in like these, this weird, like red, you know, plants growing on the side of the pond. The pond is, is figuring out a way to deal with the toxic waste that was poured into it. Right. My opinion is, is when you look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin is that the red like grass that's, that's you know, taking the blow of the toxic waste that's been poured into the, the, the manipulation that's been yeah. poured into the global economy. And it's just a reaction. It's a natural, um, you know, like biological kind of response to financial market manipulation.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I, to tie this back into the brain, I, I was struck by... <laughs> We got off topic there. Well, I mean, I think the theme is the same though, because so money is coordinating the global hive mind, basically, right? So I think the connection, or at least the analog for me here in the brain is that the the neurons or all these individual cells of the brain, they're coordinated by neurotransmitters. Yep. Uh, The book goes into some like sickness and different debilitations that affect the signaling mechanism which yeah. is that's what money is to an economy, what a neurotransmitter is to the brain and how it uh, results in these different pathologies. So I think to your point, it's like, yeah, we have a pathology that we've introduced, I guess, unknowingly, you might say, just sort of incrementally, we we manipulated the money a little bit here and there until we got into this really irrecoverable situation where it's it's going to be bad. Um, Do you see like, do you think money is like a, I mean, is it the dynamics that play out for a neurotransmitter they're similar to the money, right? There's coordination mechanisms. So is that how you look at this? Is Again, we talked about these fractal, um, you know, the, the brain is a market in a way. And then the market is a network of brains, you might say.
1: Yeah, I would look at the, uh, I, I would look at it as a similar dynamic to that, um, I think I'll just leave it as, as a yes. I, I I do think that that's how it works without getting into further description. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, the author, he says this, this quote is pretty cool. It says, quote, everything you experience, every sight, sound, smell, rather than being direct experience is an electrochemical rendition in a dark theater. Vision yeah. emerges from the coordination of billions of neurons working together in a particular complex symphony, unquote.
1: I mean... So this is amazing. So when uh, some of the research that, uh, that he has done is how, do, how can we develop um, other things as sensors to perform certain actions? So um, I think he's, and, and I might be wrong about the exact description of this, but in general, he's set up like a, a camera that provides inputs, um, sensory inputs onto your skin. Mm. I also believe that they're doing this on the tongue, where they've uh, put uh, sensors that basically uh, convert a video signal to uh, these sensors that then rest on the, on the tongue. I think they're also doing it on the back with like a, like a matrix of um, like impressions. And then they wire, the, and, and then your brain wires and interprets this as meaningful information mm-hmm. to see. So, you know, let's if you're a if you're blind and you have this, um, you've had this surgery to to have these sensors added to your body, and you're walking down the street, you can sense um, a person coming. You can sense that there's a wall there. Like those are things that. Um, are being provided. Now, what, what I ask myself is, so I know what that looks like based on how my eye is supplying this information to my brain, but it's just neurons firing that are making me feel like this is a real thing that I'm looking at. So what is that person, quote unquote, seeing? And that's what you're getting at with, with that quote that you just read. Like, Like, what is it and so yeah. I often think about dogs too. So when you see a dog, like they're so dependent on smell because mm-hmm. it just makes up, uh, you know, when you, when you, when you run a deep neural net on uh, like we, I was telling you to do the TensorFlow thing, um, you can see how certain uh, neural nets that you set up drive the solution set for the the pattern and for um, how the quote unquote brain is seeing something. And with dogs, they're highly reliant on their nose, much more so than anything else. I don't know if you've ever had a dog, you come back and like, like immediately the smell, like they know it's you. But if you're, I've done this on like a Skype call, I'm talking to my wife. And the dog's there and I'll like call the dog and you can, you can see the dog does not get it at all. Like it's not reliant on its ears and hearing my voice. It doesn't get excited. It just lays there. It does nothing Yeah. Yeah, because my smell and my scent is not in that room. And so I just wondered like for, for various animals and things like that, like their perceptions are driven way more. Like as humans, I think if you would look at how our brain like the dominance of how the neural net is driving our decision-making and how we're viewing the world so much of its optics yeah. uh like what's coming through your eyes but for other animals it is not it is other things that that like it's just uh cognitively putting a huge demand on their brain
0: yeah and towards the end of the book he's talking about this wearable technology which I think you're getting here is this the what do you call the variable extrasensory transducer, which yeah. was the, the acronym VEST. Um, and it allows you, I guess you basically say, to feel data, right? Yeah. I think that an actual vest. He's hooked uh, it
1: up to the stock market for people. Yeah.
0: Like, yeah. Yeah. And somehow the brain, I think there's a bit of a learning curve, but the brain figures yeah. it out. Like you figure yeah. out a way to feel these. Different data inputs and the brain sort of adapts to it.
1: Just like a deep neural net can figure out whether it's a cat picture, like it's going to go through the training, whatever, whatever data and pictures you're you're training it with. Um, after a while it starts to just like um when they were first doing TensorFlow it was really big on playing chess and and the game of Go. Um oh, yeah. what they what they found with Go, uh when they were first training it, they were like giving it uh like they fed it some training models of like, hey, here's what great games look like, right? And then they let it play itself and it played itself a million times and it played. The next time they they went around, they gave it no training whatsoever. Mm-hmm. They just said, here's your constraints. Now play yourself and then play yourself, you know, a hundred million times. What they found is the one that didn't have the human cognitive bias on how chess is played
0: mm.
1: is the one. Is the one that played better. Mm. So, like when they conditioned the first neural net with, um, like, this is how we think you should play the game. These are the best players in the world. Right. Now, now condition yourself after we taught you that. Versus, we're never going to teach you anything. Just condition yourself. But you're going to do it in a million, you know, ten million or whatever. How many, yeah. however many runs they do, and that's the one that actually beat the the previous version
0: and that was after um computer beat a human at chess right because go i think go is just more complex than chess
1: go is way more complex than chess yeah. like way more and so um yeah and they there's never been a computer that's ever beat a person at go a human at go is that and
0: still true you
1: know, today no uh oh. tensorflows yeah tensorflow
0: yeah yeah
1: google did it um they they conditionally programmed a deep neural net and they put it up against a human. And and it was, you want to listen to a really interesting like thing. Go back and watch the uh, like professional Go players watching uh, Google AlphaGo play the number one player in the world. And when they're doing the commentary, it was like somewhere in the middle of the game, AlphaGo made this, this move and the professional like grandmasters that were watching were like, Oh, that's, that was weird. That doesn't make any sense. We have no idea why the computer just made that move. Only to find out like a hundred moves later or whatever, because of that move that they didn't understand, it all came into view and they wow. were like, oh my God, because of that really strange move, like a hundred moves ago, like we just, oh my God, this is like watching God play a human wow. being at that go right like it just makes sure the hairs on your arm stand up when you when you listen to the commentary it's wild
0: that that's like yeah scary and exciting all at once in a way um yeah and i wonder so the author talks about the potential of actually changing the sensory our own sensory portals to the world that we may be actually able through these wearable technologies to tweak yeah how we interface with the world at some point. Well, just
1: think of yeah, just think about it. All you're doing is you're just adding more sensing mechanisms and then you're tying it into the brain. Now, when you're when you're adding these sensors and you're using the skin, like your your sense of touch as mm-hmm. the interface, because it's already interfaced into your brain, there's there's limitations and constraints there because maybe your sense of touch makes up, and I have no idea what this is, but it makes up whatever amount of gray matter in Mm. in your total, the number of lobes and everything that you got in your brain. But if you could take some of these sensors and go direct and Elon Musk, you know, he's obviously interested in this space Mm. with the neural uh, link stuff, uh, which I think they're way off, way, way, way off of, of this becoming something that's, that's real. But Mm. um, imagine if you could tap into much more gray matter with a sensor that's providing you, especially a sensor that's way outside of, the the senses that we have today but you're going into part of the spectrum the electromagnetic spectrum for sensing in an area that's just not an area that that we are even remotely like let's say you go into the hyperspectral space and yeah. you have uh some type of uh access that you could then tie into your brain and, and like what would that mean for your ability to operate within your normal environment that you would then have Conscious awareness of that nobody else can even see. You're just totally blind to that.
0: <laughs> it's, <laughs> I mean, we're like superhuman or cyborg at that point, right? We can start to see. Yeah. I don't know. I guess you could just see any form of data, right? You could see, yeah, very anything. obviously, infrared, ultraviolet would be kind of the immediate yep. things. But then you could actually see. I don't know market data, maybe weather patterns.
1: I I got a little taste of this whenever I flew. So. Um, you know, when you fly an Apache, you're flying with IR, um, Mm. in in one of your eyes and it's, it's a camera that's on the aircraft. And as you're looking around, you're seeing everything in heat, like almost like predator vision. Mm. Um, and so you're able to, you're able to see things and, uh, make decisions that are a little bit different than what you see when you're looking through the visible spectrum. Yeah. Um. And so yeah there's there's neat things like that and um EOIR so I'd have sensors that I could do EOIR so you know you're flying in Afghanistan and you, the you're taking fire if you're up uh, if you using IR lens well you don't see it real well yeah. but if you have got an EOIR on, on your on your eyeballs like it looks like you know Armageddon <laughs>
0: yeah 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 so,
1: So you just, you know, and that's just like a really simple example of something that's very close. Like those spectrums that I'm talking about are very close to your visible spectrum, but I'm curious, like, what if we get outside like spectrums that we're just not used to having access to? Like, what would that mean? And like, yeah,
0: dude, it's fascinating stuff. I mean, x-ray, like all these, whatever we only see, I think the author quoted that too. one 10 trillionth of the light spectrum. So
1: the whole energy spectrum. So you have all this energy that's all around you. Like we're talking right now and there's countless radio stations that are happening in this room that I'm sitting mm, in right now. I have no conscious awareness of them because I don't have a, I don't have a sensor to pick up those specific frequency bands and run them into my neural net. But if I did, could you imagine the, the conscious, uh, tuning of like the thalamus to be able to handle all those inputs. But we're we're doing, we're doing this stuff right now. Like, like, I think if, if you would look at a much simpler being, like, let's say we were an earthworm and we were looking at all the signals that a human being is processing. We'd be like, you know, as an earthworm, you'd be looking and be like, how are they handling all of that? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the the author make so it's very hard to imagine because i just i don't know it's how do you imagine outside of your own perceptions difficult if not impossible but he say he says that in the course of these experiments they've determined that there's no currently no known limit on the kinds of signals the brain could learn to incorporate yeah so it's as if the brain it, is just constantly adapting to its input sources
1: yeah and but what i would tell you is and there's there's many examples of like taxi drivers that uh after they've driven a, a cab for mm-hmm. 30 years that their lobe in the back that manages their spatial orientation and awareness um is uh way larger and takes over a bigger chunk of their gray matter than somebody who was not a cab driver or somebody right. who's doing that so um your brain adapts it has a it has a lot of um uh, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm Neuroplasticity. Like plasticity. Thank yeah. you. It has a lot of plasticity to, to make those adjustments. Um, where I was going with that though, is, is where I have concerns with, let's say we start getting all these different sensors that you can start wiring into the brain. I don't know how well uh, it'll be managed. You know, we were talking about the thalamus and its ability to control what gets into conscious awareness versus what's happening in the background. Most of it, all the processing that's happening in your brain is happening in the background. So would your brain be flowing this up through the thalamus? And would it actually get into some type of uh part of your neocortex that you could actually start using that um in a way that would be useful? Um, yeah, I I I don't know. I you'd have to talk to a neuroscientist or somebody to see what their opinions on something like that would be. I don't know.
0: Yeah. This, man, it's so mind-blowing, literally. Um I want to read this one quote because this points to where it could end up one day. Uh, he says, quote, our great, 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 great grandchildren may one day struggle to understand who we were and what was important to us. At this moment in history, we may have more in common with our Stone Age ancestors than with our near future descendants, unquote. So it's like we have now, I mean, he's through-
1: getting at what we're talking about.
0: Yeah yeah, through these technologies, we're entering this co-creative relationship with evolution in a really serious way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's like, uh, where where does this all go? I, dude, I don't know. I know one thing, it's fascinating.
0: Um, yeah, it really, and I just keep, <sighs> I sort of think that to a much milder extent, you know, money as a tool helps us see the world through the eyes of others in a way, right? Like we're through the price signal. We're getting a lot of data compressed into a number, but what if that's just kind of like the beginning, you know, what if we figure out new ways to compress data even further? And I I mean, it's just mind boggling. I don't even know what we've become. Everything would change everything, our relationships, our lifestyle.
1: I have a theory and Um, you know, I've talked it over with Jeff Booth. He disagrees with me. Um, But when I think about what what does Bitcoin mean for the future and what's, you know, like what's the, what does it do for productivity, technological advancement, and just kind of the path that we're moving forward? Because right now it feels like technology is about ready to eat everything. Mm. What I've noticed in financial markets is just when you think everything's about to go you know, parabolic in one direction, it actually starts to move in the opposite direction. Um, so when I think about what Bitcoin supplies, it supplies sound investment for mm-hmm. things that have a very high probability of a win. Mm-hmm. Because nobody that's dealing with, especially right now as you're going through the transition of fiat turning into To Bitcoin Um, and and the value that it's going to continue to appreciate relative to fiat. Like, I don't know about you, but I know how to do a discount cash flow model on the valuation of of what I think something's going to produce. And when I compare that to what I think the appreciation of Bitcoin is going to be, I'm not going to sell my Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so I think about how am I going to act as a person who has Bitcoin five or 10 years from now? And like, if I'm going to invest in something, that thing better be kicking off a a ton of free cash flows. Yeah. Not only that, but it better be priced in a in a uh, price point that gives me a really high return on those free cash flows. Mm-hmm. And when I think about what does that mean for the broader global economy, it means higher discount rates. It means, uh the amount of people willing to put their capital into the market to advance some of these crazy technologies that we're talking about you if you used to have 10 people willing to do that i think in the future you might have 3 people willing to do that right and so if you only have 3 people willing to do that they're only investing in the really high probability technologies that have a lot of technical maturation mm-hmm. versus ones that are, that today would get money in the snap of a finger because there's just there's Currency everywhere. Spax, <laughs> is Spax is just yeah. like in in these. Uh, I don't I don't want to I don't want to label certain people right. So <laughs> there, but, uh, um, yeah, so I just look at that. I look at this technology growth and this trend, and I think that you're going to continue to see it go because mm. there's so much momentum based on all this money and the incentive structure of inflationary monetary policy, and then that getting turned on its head. That, that trend is going to continue to go up, but eventually I think Bitcoin is going to start slowing this down. Mm. And I think it needs to slow down because yeah. if I was going to use an, uh, an example of what I see is happening in the global economy right now, we literally have Lord Helmet sitting in, in the, uh, in the <laughs> spacecraft and he's trying to go to ludicrous speed with the economy. right? <laughs> and everybody in the ship is like, God, Lord Helmet, (laughs) slow (laughs) us down, slow us down. And I see Bitcoin kind of being like, remember when they pulled the power levers back and then Lord Helmet goes flying to the strip of the thing (laughs) and smashes his helmet. He's like, ah, you know, I'm surrounded by idiots or whatever, right? So I kind of see Bitcoin as being, we're going to pull the power levers back And we're going to be getting this this whole different incentive structure, especially when it comes to capital investment.
0: Um, (laughs) And you're going to have free
1: and open markets. So (laughs) it's going to be a good thing.
0: Yeah. Uh, It's the return of value investing, right? It's going
1: to be the return of value investing. I think that when I look around at the global economy, what I see is technology is outstripping mankind's ability to handle it.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Like yep.
1: we ha- we have so much like do you ever like just stop and think like how in the world did we invent all of this stuff just like in the last 80 years? But like you go back through time and like you know like technical growth, technology growth was like like a snail's pace. And then out of nowhere, like just in the last 80 years, well, you had a dollar That was the global, that became the global reserve currency. And every other currency on the planet for the first time pegged itself to the dollar. Mm -hmm. We acted like there was a gold standard. Mm -hmm. Okay. It it was a nice briefing narrative (laughs) thing. But at the end of the day, they kept adjusting the money multiplier, which made that completely, you know, uh, only. In word and letter only that that was a real thing, right? We come off that and then we run it for another 40 years with no backing of any kind. And through that entire time, we were debasing the buying power, which is an inflationary monetary policy for 80 years. Yeah. Well, what do you think you're going to get? You created the biggest incentive structure the world has ever seen for for capital investment to chase anything and everything that's technology related to- To to do, get where we're at right now.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you know, it, uh, just imposes riskier behavior, right? Because you're just everyone's that's in right. a race to outpace inflation, basically.
1: With 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 uh, riskier behavior that's rewarded. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really important caveat to what you said. Is the big, the big players, they got too big to fail. Right. So we can't let anybody fail, but we're going to let them devour and eat every little small cap company yeah, and take more and more market share so that there's two players in any space, you know, two major players in any space. Yeah. So there's still competition. Right.
0: Right. Right. Which then it just, you've, you've stunted capitalism, you've stunted creative destruction. So eventually it gets rigid and it collapses. And that's right. Yeah. I would say you're seeing that in a lot of industries today and it's only going to get worse with this wave of inflation. Um, no, Jeff and I, we talk about that a lot too. And man really reinforces the importance of humility because there's that quote that, the the human inability to understand the exponential function is our greatest shortcoming. Something to that effect. That's right. And it's like exponential change. We live in an age of accelerating exponential change. So if That's you right. think you've if you think you've got it figured out, or you think you know what's going on, uh, that really works against you. I think when things are moving this fast, so you have to be super humble. You've got to bring a beginner's mind to every situation. You've got to be a first principles thinker about all things. Um, and I think it, yeah, it's, uh, the corruption and, of the money is just kind of corrupted our outlook in a way for, not, I'm not saying us like you and me or anyone in particular, but in general, uh, well, when I think this would, this is what's led me to the brain is,
1: is when you start to understand how you have these biases, and it's not something you can necessarily control. The only thing that you can do is question everything that you think you know. Mm-hmm. So I think I know that Bitcoin is sound money. Well, why? To be quite honest with you, the reason I'm on Twitter so much duking it out with everybody is because I'm trying to find somebody that can tell me why I'm wrong. I'm trying to find <laughs> yeah, somebody yeah. Who, can, who can shoot holes through an argument that that has first principles thinking. Right that they're not just spewing something that that they want to hear, but like and they're approaching it from a from a from a constructive way, right because if they're right. not typically if they're not approaching it from a constructive way they they've probably have big gaps and blemishes in the way that they think about a lot of other things. so it's it's hard for me and this is a cognitive bias, it's hard for me to listen to people like that,
0: yeah, no, I hear you 100 percent. Um, I, on that topic, actually, maybe I could ask you. So, I'm doing the same thing. I've been asking myself, you know, how do we, how do you stop Bitcoin? Right? I'm trying to figure it out, just like everyone else. Been asking myself that for five years, nonstop. Um, one that came up recently that I think has a lo- little bit of credibility to it is this idea of a state co-opting a proof of stake coin. And basically, you know, if a if a nation state came out, let's just say, in support of Ethereum, and they're just full on, you know, this is our money now. We're gonna put it. We're gonna build systems on top of it. We're buying a ton of it, and then they simultaneously just put a, a total disparagement campaign and regulatory attack, political attack on Bitcoin. They could. There's like a social layer attack vector that might work a little bit there. And then if you were ever able to. Execute that so effectively that you actually flipped the market caps because you could drive Bitcoin's or Ethereum's market cap if you're the Fed, right? You just print money all day, keep buying Ethereum, pump it to high heaven, and you could try to suppress Bitcoin with everything you got. Now that you could really stop it, do you think that's a viable attack vector? No, do you think we'll see anyone all. taking it that? Doesn't attack? mean they
1: won't. It doesn't mean they won't try it, but is it and is it viable? Sure, they they can my definition of viable is can they do it yes yeah. um would it work no so like the market cap of the dollar is is hundreds of trillions of dollars right so if we're if we're using market cap as a as a as a stick to say whether one's more valuable than the other that's that's a bad stick it's it's that trend that you're looking at the the appreciation of the one versus mm. the other but um and more importantly, especially when you get into the end game, it's about trust of the other. So mm-hmm. we go back to the Weimar example, like, hey, they had hundred trillion dollars, just like you see in, in nation states right now, where you got hundred trillion dollar bills.
0: Yeah. That doesn't yeah.
1: mean that it's more valuable and has the trust, right? Um whatever, whatever uh central bank digital currency, uh comes onto the scene, whatever it is, whether they take an existing token, whether they stand up their own token, they still have the same problem with the dollar. The problem is this, they have to continue to debase it in order to allow enough capital into the market so that people are still willing to play the game with their currency. That's Uh the problem. If we're using the monopoly example, Uh think about every player at the board, except for one, the one is, is Loaded, they own everything, and all the other players just keep going around and paying that one person that owns all the equity until Uh they get back around to go. And then they get their check again, Uh and then they go back to their slave job, and then they just continue to pay that one person every time they go around the board. You're going to get to a point where people do not want to keep playing that game. Right. And the government right now is in a situation where all the equity is owned because of the incentive structures and not allowing businesses to fail. One person, you know, I'm speaking in generalities here. One person owns all that equity. And the government's saying, no, 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 no. Keep playing. We'll give you, we'll, <laughs> we'll put it in your bank account. Keep playing. Right? That's go straight to go, right? That's right. Go straight to go. Uh, hey, you know what? Don't pay your tax. You, you know what? Three more months until you have to pay your taxes this time. Yeah. Next time it'll be six months. And, right. and here's instead of I know your rents getting a little high because that one person on the board keeps raising it. Yeah. Um maybe we'll just give you 300 time $300 next time you go around go even though your rent on average around the board went from 200 to 400.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> keep
1: playing the keep playing the game, you slave. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so this thing yeah agreed that it's self-annihilating the fiat currency complex. I just yeah, I did have concerns about that if they were to try and push people on to, I'm just using Ethereum as an example, I'm sure it'd more likely be their own centralized uh, smart contract platform um, or or whatever. I'm actually, so I'm I'm not,
1: uh, when if, if the central bank digital currencies come on the scene, my concern with them is more on the data side of the house, the, the mm. access that they're going to have to the data than uh just you know the central bank digital currency. In a way it's gonna, it's gonna help the market from a liquidity standpoint, instant settlement standpoint. Mm-hmm. The whole re- in my opinion, the whole reason you have stable coins right now is because you don't have anything that can immediately clear right. in a counterparty type trade. Yeah. So like let's say you don't want to sell your Bitcoin to pay your taxes. So you're gonna go out and borrow uh against your Bitcoin. So you have to you have to like set up a contract that allows that that dollar to clear immediately if the uh, value uh, of your Bitcoin drops below what's in escrow, it has right. to immediately settle, right? Like because everything in in this space is over collateralized, immediately settling assets.
0: Mm. If
1: You're not doing that, you're going to get tore up, especially with the volatility. Yeah. So. They're serving that purpose, and I think if you have a central bank digital currency that immediately clears, I think that's going to be a good thing. That's because now you don't have to trust whether Tether has the reserves that they say they have. It yeah, doesn't yeah, matter yeah. anymore. But you're getting the the clearance mechanism that's coming. Now the downside with this is, like I said, the data, the data that's going to be yeah. associated and their ability to say, "Oh, uh, I know we gave you a thousand dollars, but now we just programmatically said that you can't spend it from, you know, for the month of May."
0: Because mm-hmm. right. they can
1: do that with programmable money. Yeah. Now you got to have some technical folks that are able to do these things, which I think is a uh That's a big hurdle. <laughs> uh for a government, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a pretty big technical <laughs> hurdle right there.
0: But, but the point's well taken: is you don't want politicians being able to program your money. I mean, that's just a really yeah. dystopian outcome. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Which And when you're talking about money, you're talking about trust yeah, buying power for the work you've already performed still being there for you in the future. Yeah. So, you know, the thing that I've noticed about this is Bitcoin feeds on manipulation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It, it devours it. Almost like if it was this monster, it would, it would literally live on fear. It greed. lives on greed. Yeah. It lives on manipulation. Yeah. It lives on people that take out a bunch of level leverage to pull their productivity to the left instead of it happening when it actually happened. Like it feeds on it. Yeah. (laughs) So like anytime I see somebody like trying to manipulate or whatever, I'm just like, oh, there we go. Feed the beast, baby. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Feed feed this thing. It needs fed.
0: And then it it's a beast that just ultimately seems like it humbles everyone in one way or another i mean no doubt about it no matter which way you look at it to the upside to the downside i mean the rule, rule number 1 that i've learned in bitcoin is always expect it to do the unexpected i mean it is it's just the craziest asset i've ever seen ever because um,
1: it's because it's it's almost like it's from a different dimension from how you and i were raised since kids right everything we know about how economies work everything yeah. we know about like incentive structures are now being completely flipped on their heads. Yeah. So whatever worked in that old system, you might want to start doing the exact
0: opposite when you're dealing with this system. It's it's It creates its own reality, which back to the brain, that's what the brain does, right? We're creating our own little internal model. And to the author's point, it's like, Anytime you see something, it's more, it says more about the shape of your brain than it does what's actually out there, which is um, just incredible. Uh, so yeah, and they- you know what
1: you you have appreciation for other people when 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 you study the brain. In my opinion,
0: yeah, because
1: the thing that like if I see somebody, let's say I get in an argument with somebody about something, I come to that when I look at how the other person's responding and how they're acting. All their past events, and let's say they're 40 years old. For 40 years, that person's brain has been conditioned to lead them to this moment for them to have the exact opposite opinion of me. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at that person and, and what they're saying to me, which might be the exact opposite of what I think, it's almost like I have these two realities that are clashing. And for me, just to say, you're wrong, you're an idiot. What I'm really doing is I'm, I'm I'm looking at 40 years of cognitive conditioning and saying that experience is completely invalid. Mm-hmm. That experience is wrong. And maybe it is, and it might be, but I think you you step into a discussion with somebody else with a whole lot more humility and the potential for you being wrong
0: mm-hmm.
1: when you think about when you think about it maybe from that vantage point. Yeah. Yeah. Like, political parties is a perfect example. I'm, pol- I'm politics agnostic. I think that there's arguments on both sides of, of both political parties that have led people to both sides. And so the power isn't knowing the one side versus the other. The power is knowing both arguments, and then mm-hmm. knowing how to kind of sit in between both of them and leverage the ones that, that add the most value to the most participants as possible for this and sometimes it's it's not it's a catch 22 there is there's a reason that the divide exists right it's just your past experiences make you want to identify with one side or the other as being valid right because you haven't lived that other experience
0: yeah yeah i think there's a lot of studies out there saying that it's actually your psychological profile maps really well to your politics. I don't know the, yeah. the exact but your your the big five personality traits maps really well to what your political leanings are. Um but this is that's a great point too that I'm same as you apolitical. I just think all politics is a charade I I don't pay attention to it. I want nothing to do with it. And that for me is one of the most exciting things about Bitcoin is that in a way, you know politics presupposes that force and coercion are effective in the world that you can go out and pass a law and if people don't abide by it, you'll take their money or throw them in jail or do whatever. Bitcoin dampens that a lot. Like in a Bitcoin world, first of all, you can't fund a lot of this legislation. a lot of it just wouldn't be enforceable. And second of all, citizens you know the governed would in theory have a lot more options. They just have a lot other they could take their capital anywhere they're not trapped in any one jurisdiction. And that seems like something, you know, clearly we'll talk about the soul later, but that seems like a good step towards operating more from the soul and less from the the ego, right? Where we're trying to coerce people into doing what we want.
1: Your typical person doesn't pay any taxes. They might think that they do, but when when you look at how much money they get back and how much they paid in, for the most mm-hmm. part, they, do. they didn't really have any type of tax burden that was meaningful uh, for a majority of the participants in the system. So, when they think about like um, government, um, they don't necessarily see that as a bill. Mm-hmm. Now, if you start dealing with sound money and people's value of what they're holding is appreciating tremendously, and they do have to start paying taxes, all of a sudden they start valuing the quote unquote service that they're receiving way differently than they did in the old system Yeah, where they weren't really paying for, for any of those services. Yeah. And so, you're going to, I think what you're going to just naturally see is that, um, you know, and we're obviously talking in a very long time horizon here. You're going to see that that sound money will automatically start to align incentives of of what is being spent on public service, and hmm. you know, diminish the amount of expenses and the size, and all those things start to become politically popular, hmm. as opposed to where we're at right now, which it's... it's Let's build it as big as we can, and hand out as much free money as we can, and right. like all that kind of stuff. The incentive structure has supplied what we see right now, and I think mm-hmm. if you change the incentive structure, you're going to get a different result. Absolutely,
0: uh, yeah, because governments can just siphon off of their tax base now through inflation. It's almost the incentive to create more dependency on government. Whereas on a hard money world, the tax bill has to be consensually negotiated. And it has to be visible. Mm -hmm. Like You can't inflate, essentially. So you have to actually send them a bill. And I forget which... Maybe it was Ron Paul that made the point that if we sent Americans, every household in America, a $80,000 tax bill every year to pay for the war in the Middle East, it'd be over in one year, right? Immediately. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about it that way. And I couldn't help... I noticed this... So fiat currency. And, and, uh,
1: another uh, one that I like, and this is this is one that Buffett had proposed. If you don't uh, send up a balanced budget, meaning like you you're spending out out uh, is is higher than the tax receipts. If you don't pass a a, a budget like that that's balanced, um, the people that are passing it are not uh, eligible for reelection. Mm. Or there's a there's a lottery um, of that no one can control there's uh 10% or 25% of the people that are in office are going to lose their seat and it's mm.
0: random oh yeah right? yeah
1: all of a sudden you start getting different uh incentives for the way that that the budget is being managed
0: you know what that is that is uh the law of decimation the ancient romans used that oh really Where, yeah if they if the the phalanx i guess the row of shield shielded soldiers, if they broke ranks, you know, mm-hmm. and let the, let the enemy come through their lines, mm-hmm. uh, the generals would implement the law of decimation, which means they'd kill one out of every two not soldiers notice. at random. So everyone had wow. a, a really big disincentive to malperformance. So everyone would hold the line. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I did not know that.
0: Yeah. That's so cool. I didn't know that about, uh, that Buffett proposed that, but that's perfect. Um, um, I couldn't help but notice this. So author is talking about uh this patient that had a schizophrenic episode. And the way he describes sch- schizophrenia was this accumulation of false realities. Yeah. And this fiat world we're in, I mean, it creates false realities, right? All these unicorn yes. companies, all this capital misallocation, all these. I think it's like fake people, even pushing fake businesses, scamming and deception, and political polarization. It's all just become the norm. Shit coins. Shit coins, like gambling. So it's it's almost like inflation induces this schizophrenia-like behavior. Yeah, and it it's all you know because schizophrenia again, it's the neurotransmitter is distorted effectively, and. With capital misallocation, it's the prices that are distorted.
1: It's the biological valuation system in the brain, yeah. malfunctioning and creating distortions in how the person sees reality. And and the fear that the person has is that they they don't know what's real. They they uh what they think is their reality, they know is is maybe true or maybe false. Mm-hmm. And so they're scared of everything. Yeah, and uh, they don't trust anything. And think about socially where we're at globally right now. Yeah. It describes that to a T. No yeah. one trusts anything that they see. It's like if they see some story or whatever on the news, like, well, that's
0: probably not true. Right. It's a I, it's a schizophrenic mindset. I wonder how much like mutual influence there is. It's like people, like if you're living. At the bottom of a socioeconomic hierarchy in a fiat currency regime, you're probably more likely to develop schizophrenia just based on all the false realities you're dealing with.
1: Yeah, I I would I would maybe hesitate to to go that far. I would just say that collectively, if you were looking at just the globe, right? And you got this collective conscious, I think that that it's a perfect representation
0: of where, where we're at with that. Yeah. I, hmm. I just feel there seems like there's a science here that's not been developed yet. You know, like this connection between money and mind, mind and money, we're using money to see through the eyes of others. So if you corrupt that perceptual system, yeah, it's like it feeds back into your neural systems and then corrupts them. Not yeah, necessarily. It's reflexive.
1: I, I would say, yeah. I would agree with that. I think it's reflexive for sure. But, but nobody talks meet- about
0: this. Right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, that's because that's because it exists. Yeah. That's because it exists. And and they're they're one of those neurons that are misfiring. Uh-huh. Not because they're not because they're a bad person. It's because of the environment that they've been served in or that they've right. been conditioned in. And so that's why I, I guess I pushed back on uh you know, I was saying that it was. A parasitic environment instead of a, you know, I forget what word was used. But when I look at the situation, I don't like to look at somebody as being bad or good. I I look at it more as that's how they've been conditioned. That's the environment that they were served yeah. into, and that's why they're they're just naturally playing out the um, the environment. They're a, in a way a person is is their environment that they've been exposed to, um, through all those years. Um, and they're just playing that out in in real time.
0: Yeah. Quite literally. They're running the programs that have been etched on to their, the patterns that have been etched onto their neural architecture from the, the patterns of action they've been involved in. um, Yeah, it's I uh, lost my train of thought, but it's it's scary in a way that it is such it's everywhere, right? It's hidden in plain sight, but it's it's nature. It's I don't see
1: it as scary. I see it as nature just playing itself out.
0: Well, what I when I'm getting with scary, I'm saying it's scary to me that no one's talking or thinking about this. It's just like I feel like we're onto something really this is part of the bitcoin rabbit hole I guess it's just like hey guys the money's really broken and it's screwing you up at every single level like psychologically economically socially every level of being is just corrupted because the money's corrupted but no one's i don't know we're just either we're just figuring this out maybe as a species if, if you
1: pour if you pour the toxic waste into the lake are the are the fish going to swim around normally
0: You're going to look like the three-eyed fish on the Simpsons.
1: Simpsons. Hey,
0: everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, NIDIG is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, NIDIG has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services, or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider NIDIG your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. The author makes the point that, you know, every brain's carrying its Own narrative, essentially, it's got its own unique pattern etched into its its itself. And then there's the seven billion or eight billion brains around the planet working together. So he's saying that basically each brain contains its own truth, its own. If we say truth isn't yeah, which maybe this isn't technically truth, because I say truth typically means an accurate portrayal of reality but it sounds like our brain really is more like an accurate portrayal of what we need to see as an organism. It's a local like, truth. <laughs> yeah. Like a local truth. Yeah. But then we're wiring all, at least in, for humans, we're wiring all these local truths together through prices, through words to try and get to a more and generalized then the expected, truth. And
1: then the expected value of all those, those, you know, uh, Opinions per topic are the collective truth yeah. as as the human race sees it. So,
0: yeah. So what? <laughs> I was going to ask, what is reality? And then he has this answer. He says, it's like a television show that only you can see and you can't turn it off.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... The Case Against Reality, like you had brought up earlier, is an interesting read that I think kind of complements a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here. Um, of course, no one knows. You can't, even, you can't really answer the question. All you can do is really kind of uh, try to understand how you fit into it and then what you can do to shape your environment from what it is you desire and what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Um, in your life, and and it goes back to you know the example I talked about on, the, on our first recording of like being on the boat and where you want to go, why right. do you want to go there? What's yeah. the impact? What's more importantly, what's your intention? Yeah. Um, because I think that there's deep repercussions for those questions and the way that you react to them, and how you're going to um, enjoy your life experience. So. I think those are the important things to focus on when, when so,
0: you're looking at it and your years of experience and, you know, got a get head on your shoulders. I think the work you do is really valuable for people. I'm sure that is very fulfilling for you. Like how, if you were going to advise younger people, how to find that meaningfulness or that or to, you know, to steer the boat well, like, do you have any general advice or wisdom you would share? I,
1: I would tell you, if you've had a painful experience in your life, pay particular attention to that mm-hmm. because you probably had it for a reason and you probably had it um as I think most people, when they have a painful experience, they look back at it and they're saying, well, that was the worst thing that ever happened to me and I never want to think about it again. But when you analyze what put me in that situation or why did I go through it, a lot of the times you can find your life's work with that mm-hmm. um, and really kind of harness it into something for good. And um, I would I would start there. And then if you can mix it with something that you just, naturally love doing. So like for me, I really enjoy financial valuation a lot. Like I I could sit here at my computer and I could look up a, a company's 10K or 10 Q and I could just plow through it and do what I think the value is. Like I don't know why. I don't know why I'm <laughs> wired like like that. But for some strange reason I love it. Yeah. Um so for me like doing the show and doing this investing podcast like I uh, do it for free. I, yeah. I just love doing it. It's fun. Um, so people got to find, they, and if you can match things that have maybe been a painful experience with things that you enjoy um, that can be turned into a, a thing of good. And, and one other thing that I would tell you is, is when you look at the, the impact you can have on other people's lives, um, that is something that's going to that's gonna pay you long lasting uh, dividends. And a sense of accomplishment is when you feel like you're helping other people, not just yourself. Um, when you help yourself, when you go out and you, perfect example, just go buy a new car. You're going to be so happy. You're going to be happy for three months <laughs> and then it's going to wear off. And you're going to be like, why the hell did I buy this car? Um, but, um, you know, if you can go out and, and really help somebody, uh, I think you're going to find that the, that the happiness
0: is way more enduring. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's good advice. The, especially the pain part, because you, you, we pain is information, right? It's your, your body or mind or experience telling you something's misfit. It didn't work. And you can get a lot of learning out of that. I think if you look at it the right way, Yeah. but to your, to your point, it's all about your perspective. If you just try to block it out and, mm-hmm. you know, run away from it, you might not get that, that revelation that you need yep what do you do you try to operate a lot in a flow state? Do you try to do anything to get there for your work? I've
1: read, the, I've read that book. I didn't like it <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yeah I, that's not something I think about really yeah. Robert um, I can tell you this like if, if I'm doing a podcast and I'm having a, an interesting conversation with somebody, It'll literally go by for me in the blink of an eye. Yeah. So that's that's what you're really getting at when you're talking about flow. So, um, you know, if, if you're getting yourself in that state often, like you're going to have found that thing that you love doing. So p- piano players or somebody who's playing a musical instrument, sometimes a guitar player, mm. they can go do these things and like hours go by. And it's like nothing,
0: right? Yeah. Yeah. The author, it just talks about this state of... I've never read the book flow state um where it says the brain enters a state of hypofrontality which i guess means you're not using the the prefrontal cortex as much you're sort of
1: yeah so here this is a really good book uh i can't remember the name of this uh it's a tennis book and um the author oh. uh what's i can't remember the name I've heard of, it, of this
0: book i think it's about competition yeah, yeah, right yeah.
1: No, this book is about flow and really kind of allowing your subconscious to play the game instead of overthinking. So Mm. tennis players, they might step up there to the line, they're dribbling the ball and they'll be like, don't hit this into the net, you idiot. Right. (laughs) And then they'll go up there and they'll hit it and straight into the net and God, right. And so what the book is telling you is, uh, when you're playing the game like that, you're using your, your your frontal lobe, right? You're you're trying to control something that you might've hit a hundred thousand serves in your life. I have no idea what those numbers would be, but yeah. like when you look at, Oh, there's a video of, uh, uh, Roger Fetter. This video blew my mind. Um, and Roger goes out there. He's like doing some type of photo shoot with some people. And, uh, the, they were like, Roger, can you just hit one shot here in, in, the, in the photo studio? And he's like, yeah, sure. He's like, here, watch this. And he goes to the one person. He says, here, put this can on your head. Like, <laughs> like, a, soda, like a soda can. God. He goes off in the distance. He dribbles the, the tennis ball. Look this up on the internet. I'm sure it's on YouTube. Yeah. I, I, I think I had it sent to me via text. But he dribbles the ball. He throws it in the air. And I mean, he smashes the living hell out of this tennis ball. And it comes right over and knocks the 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 coke can off the person's head.
0: Wow. Right?
1: And so when you think about how a person hits that, do you really think Roger Federer is stepping up there saying, Oh boy, I hope I don't miss and smash this person's face and put him in the hospital? <laughs> right. Like he's stepping up there, and, and you know what he's telling him. So he's like, I'm gonna crush this ball and that that can right off this guy's <laughs> head, and everyone is gonna cheer. <laughs> right. Like that's what that guy's thinking about. And and then he just dribbles it and just does it. He's not thinking about where he needs to snap his wrist. He's not thinking about anything yeah. He's just doing it. And so the book is, a, is about like, and you don't have to be Roger Fetter. Like the book is about leverage your subconscious to play the game. And so like, before you go to hit, like, don't think about things like bring yourself into like this, almost like a meditative state. And do the things that you've already conditioned your body to do. So, and then the more times you practice, the more times you go. Like if you're hitting yeah. a golf ball, right? Like, is allow that cognitive conditioning to swing the club. Allow yeah. it to swing the racket. Like, um. So I I forget how we even got on that topic, but
0: um. We're just talking oh, about flow state, the, but yeah.
1: Yeah, that's a flow state. That's why.
0: Okay, yeah. I think the book is inner the inner game of tennis. I just looked it up here. That's
1: it. That's the game. Yeah. That, that's the book. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um I haven't read it yet, but I've I've heard really good things about it. People saying it's a great book on on I think training and yeah, flow state in general. So yeah. Um
1: you see this with chess players too. It's just like, I mean, they can literally look at the board have no idea why they they would move a piece, but they'll just be
0: like, oh yeah, I need to move this piece right here. Mm. Just instantly. Yeah, It's that unconscious mind, right? Yeah. It's, did, They've did played you,
1: that many games that
0: they don't even have to think about it. Did you get a chance to listen to that podcast I sent you that was uh, Jordan Peterson and Ian McGilchrist? No, I didn't. I'm so Man. sorry. No, it's fine. When you check it out, I'd love to hear what you think about it. He makes the case okay. that he wrote a book called The Master and His Emissary. And he says that the left hemisphere, which is associated with your right hand, mm-hmm. is your active awareness reductionist. tries to turn it use um, tries to turn everything into a word or a symbol or a pattern or a program. Like it's it's yep uh, your analytical side, right? And the other
1: side is your creative side, yeah.
0: And the other side is the creative side, but the master, he said, we've flipped, we've inverted, and made the um, analytical side, the master in Western civilization, but to be good and um, competent and to get into a flow state, you actually have to learn to make the right side, the master, because it's more powerful, but then you use the analytical side. It's more like your active awareness versus your, um, I guess, basic awareness. I haven't read the book yet. I'm not doing it justice, but I thought it was really um, germane to what we've been talking about.
1: What I think is a dangerous thing for people to do, is to label themselves one or the other.
0: Mm.
1: Like I tell myself a lot how much I like math and I like to do like the evaluation stuff. Mm. And and that's probably a bad thing. Like uh, I I should probably exercise labeling of myself as being mm. creative in in those things as well because what I think happens is is um, over time I I kind of feel like the the healthiest type of thinker And just person like for yourself and your skills and your ability to contribute to society is the more balance between the two that you can really kind of uh, manifest or tell yourself that you have. I think it's way more powerful.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's you're almost you are the story you tell yourself in a way. Right. No,
1: no doubt about it. Like, be careful what you tell yourself because you might just realize it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a great point. Uh, another thing about the unconscious that I've experienced myself a lot is this, this flash of insight thing where you're just, I mean, sometimes you get it in the middle of the night or when you just wake up or the, sometimes the shower thought is kind of the the infamous version where you're just really not Thinking about anything, especially a problem you've been working on for a really long time, and then the, the answer or something will just hit you like a bolt of lightning. Um,
1: and you're doing a, you're doing a mundane task that you don't have to think about. Yeah. Sometimes you're just kind of like just relaxing or whatever, and then your subconscious is allowed to is is able to flow it
0: forward right. without it
1: getting log jam with you trying to use that thinking part of your brain. The the frontal lobe all the time.
0: Yeah. 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 It's like almost like your brain has innovated the answer, but you can't force innovation. It has to come, it has to emerge naturally. Um, and I've just noticed with writing, I always like to give myself a lot of time to like write it, reread it, edit it, rewrite it. Because if you just give yourself plenty of time to marinate, you get all these little Flashes of insight along the way when you're not actively doing it. So kind of like the That's more right. time you give yourself, the more opportunity you have for those. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think you mentioned this earlier, but I thought just to mention it one more time, this concept of priming, mm-hmm. which is when uh, he could have a patient holding a warm drink, and then they would describe their relationship with a family member more favorably. <laughs> yeah. Like, like physical warmth transmuted <laughs> into relationship warmth.
1: If people want to learn more about that, they need to go read the Cialdini book that you
0: mentioned earlier. Hey, the Presuasion? The,
1: the Presuasion one. Yeah. yeah. that Man, that could give you, I mean, it's just such a great book for that uh, particular topic.
0: Yeah. The other one was, <laughs> this one's a little more funny. That men tended to tip twice as much to dancers that were ovulating, meaning they were fertile, uh, as opposed to when she was menstruating, not fertile. So
1: (laughs) talk about your dog
0: sniffing you and happy to see you when you come home. It's like humans are doing it too in the strip club.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you're doing it subconsciously that you uh, are paying attention to cues that that are not hitting your conscious access.
0: That's so funny.
1: And good. Just like you- the toilet paper tube thing we were talking about last year. You know, like and- you are not you're not seeing it, but your brain is registering it. Yeah. You just don't have conscious access to it.